Good morning and welcome to Rising. Bloomberg's Jennifer Jacobs reports this morning that the U.S. will indeed ban imports of Russian oil, with the White House announcement coming as soon as today. We'll discuss that later in the show with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Meanwhile, Russia says it will stop, quote, in a moment if their demands are met. The Kremlin said Moscow is demanding that Ukraine cease military action, change its constitution to preserve neutrality, acknowledge Crimea as a Russian territory, and recognize the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. Ukraine did not immediately respond to the Kremlin, though Zelensky has said he's open to discussing the separatist regions. The country's uh, president said he is, quote, not hiding as he remains in his office in Kyiv. Let's watch that. Була домовленість про гуманітарні коридори. Чи спрацювала вона? Замість неї спрацювали російські танки. Російські гради, російські міни. Вони навіть замінували дорогу, яка, яку погоджували для підвезення продуктів і ліків для людей. Будемо говорити, будемо наполягати на переговорах, поки не знайдемо спосіб сказати нашому народу ось як ми прийдемо до миру. Я залишаюсь тут, залишаюсь у Києві, на Банковій, не ховаючись, і нікого не боюсь, стільки, скільки потрібно, щоб перемогти у цій нашій вітчизняній війні. And this comes as Ukrainian forces continue to stave off Russian military advances, retaining key cities and borders despite being smaller and less equipped. But the toll on civilians is not unnoticed. The United Nations estimates roughly 2 million Ukrainians, including 1 million children, have fled the country since the invasion began. And the first stage of evacuations along safe corridors in Ukraine is currently underway. Independent journalist Manny Murata joins us now to discuss. Hello, Manny. Hello. Thank you for joining us. And you said you're back uh, in the United States as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey home? Yes, uh, I returned to the United States a few days ago uh, from Poland. Um, I returned uh, because um, the, I was in Poland already. I was no longer in Ukraine. Um, but I'm hoping very soon to make a journey back to Ukraine to cover more of the refugee experience and the war that's ongoing there. Uh, I made a lot of contacts in Ukraine who are keeping me updated on the situation. Uh, they're still very much in the country, um, and I'm keeping in touch with them regarding what is going on there with the war and with the refugee crisis that is ongoing there. And and do you have do you have any sense? So obviously we're we're hoping that you know a deal can be reached to immediately bring this to a halt. You know with with a declaration of neutrality that Ukraine will not be part of NATO. And then I guess that some of this disputed territory, the Donbas, Crimea, uh, will, you know, will, will be independent, will no longer be part of, of Ukraine. You know, do you think that's something that, that Ukraine could accept? It sounds like it's obviously something Russia would accept. I don't believe that this is anything that the Ukrainian people or the country of Ukraine would accept. It's a very unilateral and one-sided offer on the part of Russia. Um, and it's unfair to the Ukrainian people, at least the way that the Ukrainian people whom I've met have seen it. 
they do not want to give up any part of sovereignty. They do not want to give up Crimea, nor do they want to give up the DNR or the LNR. And so they will continue fighting for those regions and for a whole and sovereign Ukraine as long as necessary. I don't believe that Ukraine will accept this offer, and I don't believe that Russia is making this offer in good faith. Right. Russia's offer obviously included uh, several things that, you know, there, there's just, you know, no, no reasonable Ukrainian government is going to accept, like rewriting their constitution. They're not going to, under pressures, rewrite the constitution because Russia tells them to. But, but, on, right. but on the other hand, Zelensky did say that he was open to discussions about those separatist regions. And so with Crimea, you know, Russia has de facto control of Crimea. And, and the world has not gone to war since 2014 over Crimea. I, and I don't think the world would say, you know what, yes, we're going to continue supporting a war over just, over just Crimea. That's, Crimea is pretty much gone. It's de facto gone. If, if it becomes kind of de jure gone, no, nobody on the, nobody's life on the ground changes that significantly. The separatist regions are much different. Because you, Tell us a little bit about what Russia is demanding there, because my understanding is that Russian-backed forces control maybe a third already of those mm -hmm. regions, but Russia is pushing, well, that was before the invasion. Russia is pushing kind of for full control of regions that they didn't control before the invasion. What do you think Zelensky means when he says he's open to discussions about those regions, because it really, if it really is about those, that doesn't seem worth World War III. There has to be a way out of this. Absolutely. And not many things in the world are worth World War III, as you mentioned <laughs> Zero things, correctly. Um, right. As you mentioned quite correctly, uh, Russia has had de facto control of Crimea since 2014 and also de facto control over these small slivers of uh, the DNR and the LNR uh, since 2014. Um, and I think that the negotiations that Zelensky is trying to conduct here with Russia are to preserve Ukraine's control of the remainder of these regions. Uh, the people who live in the other parts of these regions, cities like Slovyansk or Bakhmut, uh, places that are under Ukraine control and have a majority Ukrainian population ethnically, um, they don't want to be part of Russia. They don't want to be part of the DNR or the LNR. It was with uh, great reluctance a couple of weeks ago that they were evacuated to Russia before the beginning of hostilities. Um, and so I don't believe that these people, at the very least, would, would tolerate or would want to live under a Russian state. Now, if it's entirely necessary to cede the entire DNR and the LNR in order to preserve peace, I believe that Zelensky might do that. I can't speak on his behalf. But I do know that the people who live in the Ukrainian-controlled sections of the DNR and the LNR would not accept uh, such a proposal. Probably they would become uh, exiles or refugees in some, some other part of Ukraine or the world. You know, it's interesting to think about the effect this you know, massive diaspora of Ukrainians is, is going to have in Poland and other places they go. Do you think, assuming we bring this to a peaceful resolution sometime soon. You know, significant parts of the cities may be destroyed, but you know, they can be rebuilt in other parts of Ukraine. The western part, you know, not as, uh, as hit yet. Do you think uh, most Ukrainians you know, will go back um, when, when the conflict has ended, or are, are we looking at a kind of a permanent community in exile kind of situation? 
I believe the Ukrainian people are proud of their country, and many of them are already beginning to return, especially the men are returning already to fight uh, in the armed forces to defend Ukraine. I think that if a peaceful resolution is reached, um, and if the war ends in a timely manner, uh, then many Ukrainians are going to return home right away, with the remainder of them returning home in the coming months. Yes, the country may be destroyed. Yes, many of the cities may be leveled. But the Ukrainian people will rebuild and they will forge onward. This is a people who has lived, who have lived in the past 100 years under uh, Soviet rule and Nazi rule and various other despotic regimes. Um, and they've been able to pull themselves out of it and build a, build a uh, future for themselves. And so I believe that the Ukrainian people will not permanently uh, engage in this diaspora, but that they will come back to Ukraine and build a better nation there. And they probably have a cultural memory of what happened in the 1930s when there was a massive uh, refugee crisis created by Stalin's Holodomor there. This is basically this Holocaust he carried out in, in yes. Ukraine. There were so many refugees pushed to Germany that, and that, that the Nazis used those Ukrainians to foment their ethno-nationalism. That they, they were the kind of the migrants that the Nazis pointed to to say that we need and, and, and really used them to you know, further their rise. Um, but so, you know, back to the separatist regions, I feel like I, I'm, I'm just so nervous that a year or two now we're going to be looking out at a, at a completely desiccated global landscape and saying, man, why couldn't we just come to some agreement over those two regions and stave off all of the carnage that we've witnessed over the last two years? So what, what, what is it? What, it what, what would Ukraine accept, do you think? That could that could allow the world to say, okay, this this is over. I don't know that acceptance of the present terms uh, would stave off a world catastrophe. I think that um, looking at the track record of, uh, of Putin's geopolitical uh, behavior, especially with uh, nations such as uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in two thousand eight, um, he oftentimes will create these separatist regions and then use them as a pretext for invasion into other regions and then um, and then broker a very unilateral and one-sided peace on the part of Russia only to come and demand more down the road. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing with uh, Crimea and the DNR and the LNR uh, becoming under combat in 2014. And then later now, eight years later in 2022, there is greater demand. So I think that even if these terms were to be accepted, that it would not be the end, that Putin would demand a little bit more appeasement and then a little bit more. Um, I think that the only terms that would bring this war to an end are terms that are won militarily. And I, this sounds harsh, but I think that the war will get rather worse before it gets better. And I think that the only terms that will end the war are ones that are won uh, in a military sense. Yeah. Manny, yeah. thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing that perspective. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Up next, Real Clear Politics White House reporter Philip Wegman will join us to discuss an incident yesterday at the press briefing for the White House where a reporter ended the session early. Stick around for that. Yesterday's White House press briefing was followed by a debate after a Wire reporter ended the session early. Now, it's a long-standing tradition that the Associated Press starts and ends the briefing. But Monday, White House reporters argued that journalists in the front row had monopolized Jen Psaki's time and that reporters in the back had more questions. 
White House reporter for Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman, was in the Philip Wegman. Sorry, I just messed your name up. Was in the White House press <laughs> briefing room, and he tweeted in part, "What is the utility of empowering a wire service to call an end to a briefing? Is it for the benefit of the press secretary, a few reporters in the front row, or the entire press corps?" Philip joins us now to expand on this beef in the briefing room that apparently went down. So, Philip, look, like, uh, you know, uh, I'm an average person. I don't I'm not uh, one of these White House reporters or uh, yeah, I've been to D.C. like twice in my life. Most people are in my position. We don't know what the heck this is, what, what you guys are talking about. So can you explain this in normal person terms? What normally happens? What happened? What's the big fight about? And you're absolutely right, Kim, because this isn't just insider baseball. Uh, this is insider baseball inside the umpire's locker room <laughs> yeah. before the game. But it's totally. hugely consequential. It's usually consequential more than just the normal griping from reporters, because like Robbie said a moment ago, uh, the wire services traditionally, they start the briefing with the first question, and then towards the end, they say, thank you, Jen, signaling that the briefing has come to a close. Uh, this was a tradition going back to Helen Thomas uh, before my time, and it was resurrected during the Biden era. The thought here is that you want a collegial briefing room, you want things to run smoothly, uh, but as we just saw, there's a bit of frustration because what generally happens is the press secretary, she calls on reporters in the first three rows. Think about uh, your legacy media, the big networks, the big, big papers of record, and then some of the other questions, if the briefing doesn't last longer than 45 minutes or an hour, some of the other questions uh, about other topics don't get answered. And so the reason this matters is it is fundamentally a question of who gets to question the press secretary, the president's spokesperson. Not only does that set the tone for the day, but it really flavors uh, the way that the administration reacts. I mean, we have seen a single question turn uh, the action of the administration previously. And so I think that this gripe is hugely consequential. And I expect that the White House Correspondents Association is going to have to deal with this uh, because it's not just enough uh, to you know, lean back on a old tradition without explaining the merits of it. And it would be one thing if the reporters in the first three rows were all asking different kind of hard hitting questions. but. In Philip, you've seen me in there a couple of times now, and what I've what I've noticed is that this the same question gets asked like six or seven times. So even if twenty questions, six 20, or seven would be a mercy. It's right, asked it's more like, than that over and over and over. Like, let me ask this a different way. See if I can mm -hmm. get some incremental news out of you know who did the president meet with on the short list of the Supreme Court and when are we going to like nothing that is actually going to advance any policy anywhere. Uh, right. And so uh, the, when it then gets cut off before it gets to other reporters, then the public isn't going to hear, you know, isn't going to see the press secretary uh, get, get challenged there. And so you and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. So wh what is, why, why would the AP reporter call it? You know, why wouldn't the AP reporter just say, you know what, I got to go, see ya. Like, why do, they, why do they need to still be there? 
My sense of the tradition is that it's twofold. First, the carrot here is that it says to the administration, we're going to help you out. We're going to make certain that this briefing doesn't turn into a marathon, that you're not here for an hour and a half, two hours long, and sort of keep things running smoothly. The stick, though, is that if the reporter from the AP or, or the wire service that's in that chair that day, if they don't call it, then it's up to the White House themselves to say, all right, we're out. We don't want to face any more scrutiny. We're going to leave. It's a small thing, and maybe it doesn't actually lead to better behavior, more transparency for the administration if the wire doesn't call the briefing. But um, at very least, there is a serious question of regulatory capture here uh, of whether or not this institution is actually to the benefit of the press corps overall or to the benefit of a number of reporters who are just in the first two or three rows. And you're absolutely right um, when, when you say that, that, Ryan, because there have been moments where you have uh, different networks asking the same question again and again because they need their cut shot for their news package. I don't begrudge them um, one bit, but it does get frustrating when you hear again and again a question about, oh, hey, have you not named a Fed nominee yet? And Jen Psaki laughs and says to the reporter, no, I haven't, but thank you for asking. Same thing with uh, the Supreme Court nominees. We knew that they were going to be buttoned up. We knew that they they weren't going to give um, an answer on that, but reporters kept trying. They kept eating clock. And the reason why that's significant is because then you don't have other reporters who have an opportunity to ask hugely consequential questions about, oh, by the way, what is going to happen to all that aid that was promised to Afghanistan? Is that going to languish in a bank account somewhere? Or is that going to go to widows and orphans? So on and so forth. Hugely massive implication questions that don't get get answered. And it's not just that you have these other reporters who are saying, you know, I want some of the spotlight. I want my mother to see me on television. No, you ask questions, not just for the soundbite from the press secretary. You ask questions so that you can knock loose other sources and say, hey, the press secretary said that she would circle back on this. She gave me an answer that differs from yours. Let's move. Let's get a better idea of what you're actually doing instead of you know just having some reporters ask questions that they know that the press secretary is not going to give an answer to so is, is there a signed seating yeah i, mean, I was just going yes. to actually ask that too but yes there is but how do you how do you uh, gain or lose clout in such a sense that your chair can change mm -hmm. So the White House Correspondents Association, and good on them, um, CBS Radio News' Stephen Portnoy, uh, as well as the board, they are aware of the fact that media is changing. I mean, this tradition, sure, it's, it's come into question, but in terms of what that briefing room looks like, they have moved um, significant uh, you know, resources around. They've said we need to make certain that it's not just legacy media up front. We need to account uh, for for new uh, voices, and they've they've sort of rearranged what the briefing room looks like. But you know, if you're in the the fourth row, um, you sort of are are left with the expectation that maybe you'll get one question a week. That that you'll just have to keep your hand uh, raised constantly. Do do your best to to try and 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 being involved there. Um, but yeah, the, the seating is the seating in the room is, is significant. WHCA controls that. But the, the reason why there's so much, I think, bubbling frustration here is two things. First, the question is, 
why was this tradition brought back? It went away during the Trump years. Why why was it brought back? Is it to the benefit of the White House? Because all of us, you know, we're, we're supposed to hold um, uh, power to account, not help power keep the, the trains running on time. Or is it to the benefit of the press corps? And the fact that that was not succinctly answered sort of raises the question of, was this tradition brought back just for nostalgia's sake? Because certainly we wouldn't just want that. Um, but when, the other when, issue- when did it end? And when is it brought back? It, Sorry. So, so it, it sort of ended during the Trump years, and then it was uh, brought back at okay. the beginning of the Biden administration. The other issue here, though, and, and I think this is still simmering, is there are a lot of reporters in the rows four, five, six, uh, and seven who they saw bad behavior during the previous administration. They saw individual correspondents turn that briefing room into a um, dress rehearsal for a prime time spot. They saw shouting, they saw people hog the microphone, they saw people um, pull all sorts of stunts in there. And there's going to be a temptation for people who are playing by the rules, who are trying to do uh, you know, what they're supposed to normally, just raise their hand, be polite, to say, you know, wait a minute, a lot of people in the previous administration for the last four years, they were rewarded for being cantankerous and interrupting. Why would we sit back and just show up to briefings, not get called on, listen to our colleagues in the front couple of rows, ask repetitive questions, and just sit there like potted plants? So this is something that the press is going to have to sort out. It's going to be difficult and painful. Um, and maybe outside of DC, people don't uh, tune into this discussion, but it's it's hugely consequential. And one would think that at a moment when trust in media is sort of on the downturn, that we would have these internal discussions uh, that right. lead to you know external results. Well, and right. that that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, what it sounds like just from listening to all of this and now kind of understanding and wrapping my brain around it is, uh, I mean, this just feeds into the suspicion that many of us have, which is that it's all a bunch of collusion, basically, between the press and certain administrations, clearly, uh, you know, potentially this administration, that it's, oh, okay, if it's assigned, so you're telling me it's assigned seating in this room, that the only people that get to sit in the first front three rows are the legacy media, which many of us do not trust, and then they're asking the same questions over and over and over again, even after they've been answered over and over and over again. And so we're just getting the same crap that's being put out there nonstop. And it is all, it sounds, planned out. And then some, some you know, journalist or supposedly then shuts the meeting down before anybody with a good question is able to ask one that's actually going to challenge the administration. So it just sounds like a bunch of incestuous collusion, which is what a lot of us have always suspected to begin with. And now sounds like it's confirmed to some degree. I, I I will say this though, um, certainly White House press secretaries, it is their prerogative to call on whoever they want. Um, if they have had a bad interaction with a reporter, yeah, that reporter is probably going to see their questions limited. And there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat and journalists have to be creative and aggressive. Um, Jen Psaki does deserve praise though, because in comparison to her predecessors in the Obama administration, she is much more willing to go around the room to hustle and to take questions from a, a varied number of outlets. The thing about that though, is that when you start taking questions, not just from one, two or three rows, but start taking a larger range of questions, that, it, that means that there is more 
ground to cover. That's more opportunities for someone to perhaps stray from the administration's line and uh, you know open up new cans of worms. That's great for reporters right. because you know we want more access and transparency. From the administration's perspective, you know that's a danger. And so I think that as the White House Correspondents Association has this uh, conversation inside the umpire's locker room, they're going to have to make certain that everyone involved knows that if there is a tradition that is for the benefit of the entire press corps or at least lay out what the thinking is so you know philip when i first showed up if you remember i asked you so does everybody get a question here and then they then they wrap it up and <laughs> everybody laughed like oh no definitely not how it goes so you know you and i you know both have an interest in breaking up this cartel because we're we're yeah. bo both lucky if we can get you know i squat a, a fourth row seat if i can get one, but if the person shows up, then I'm, I'm against the wall. So, you know, where do you think that, where do you think this leads? Mm -hmm. um, so tradition, if it is grounded in some sort of principle, generally leads to better results. But if it's based off of just nostalgia, then someone else is going to take advantage of that. Um, there's always an opportunity for someone to gain an advantage. And I think that what we have seen from the press corps thus far is we, we have seen aggressive questions. And absolutely, there are times when the same question has to be asked you know, over and over again on a consequential topic. But I think that you know, as we see the media landscape change, and as we see, uh, you know, voters expect not just you know the, the same um, coverage as before, but expect you know the White House to be um, poked and prodded in, in new different ways. Uh, there, there's going to have to be some sort of change, um, and certainly, I don't think that. Uh, leaving it to the goodwill of individual reporters is going to be enough because frankly you know there have been times you know when i've been called on and i've thought to myself all right this is my moment i'm not just going to ask one or two questions i'm going to try and get as many as possible because i don't know when i'm going to be called on again i've been lucky to get you know one or two questions a week but i think that perhaps um, you know, there's going to have to be a gentleman's agreement inside of that room. And hopefully the impetus is to get better, unique coverage, not just to make certain that, uh, you know, regular players get seen uh, regularly. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, the American people, I think, would like to see a lot more questions asked. And maybe it could be like a lottery system. I would like to see her have to pull names out of a hat <laughs> and then say, OK, now, and if they look and if they want to prepare in advance, I get it. If the administration wants all the questions in advance, I get I don't know how that works. I don't know what the I don't know what the ethics are on that. Seems like, but yeah. you know, then they could maybe prepare and okay. But if you happen to call that person's name out of that hat, they get to ask you that question, whatever that question might be, and you've got to answer it. And if your answer ends up being, you know, one of those typical, just shoving it aside of, well, I'll have to get back to you on that, and you say that over and over again, that reflects poorly on the administration. This just looks like it's giving the opportunity for the administration to cover their tracks, and that's my big problem with this. Yeah. Well, we got to leave it there. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, Florida's Surgeon General officially recommends against vaccinating healthy kids. We'll discuss that coming up next. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Latipo announced yesterday that the state now formally recommends against vaccinating healthy children for COVID, which is directly contradicting the CDC's official guidance. Now, this latest move comes after Latipo's past public disavowals of Democrats' pandemic response. Here he is yesterday. 
you know, individual rights and individual choice and truth on one side and really sort of overarching powers, overarching government, abusive powers, abusive data, dishonesty, and frankly, a lot of unethical behavior on the other side. Meanwhile, the White House was quick to push back against the Florida Surgeon General with Press Secretary Jen Psaki accusing Latipo of, quote, peddling conspiracy theories. The FDA and CDC have already weighed in, in the safety, uh, on the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines for those five and older. The recommendations are vetted transparently through a process for, uh, with a purpose so that parents can have confidence after consulting with their pediatricians or doctors if they would like about the safety. But we also know through the data that unvaccinated teenagers are three times as likely to, the, to be hospitalized if they get COVID than vaccinated teenagers. So it's deeply disturbing that there are politicians peddling conspiracy theories out there and casting doubt on vaccinations when it is our best tool against the virus and the best tool to prevent even teenagers from being hospitalized. And what was frustrating to me about Latipo's presentation there was he did this on the one hand, on the other hand, thing that a lot of medical professionals do. And to me, which is the appropriate thing to do when you're talking about very young, healthy children with the vaccine. On the one hand, Omicron is extremely mild. And, you're very, and if you're healthy, it's, it's very unlikely to cause you any severe illness. On the other hand, the vaccine is very, also very unlikely to cause you any severe illness. And so you need to weigh these two things. He, he comes out on the one hand... And he says all. And then he says on the other hand, there's abusive data and government power. It's, it's, a, it, it's not a an actual right. balancing by a by a medical professional, even though he is a medical professional. He's not he's not saying here here are the here here's one side and here's the other, and you as parents ought to weigh these two different sides and come to a decision. He's like, you know, don't worry about the Omicron at all, and also this is abusive government on the other hand. It's like. Hmm. Anyway, what, what, what was your takeaway? From yeah, this? look, I actually like the idea of states and local authorities departing from CDC guidance. The CDC guidance is supposed like to be just... Like a lot of just, states did on masks. It's supposed to be just guidance. It's not something everyone has to militantly follow. The CDC has changed its guidance. It's changed its mind about the science numerous times. So it, it is not unthinkable that a local authority or decision maker would come up with a plan or an idea or discover something about the science that is ahead of what the CD, what the CDC recommends, because the CDC has changed its mind. Right. All that said, look, I don't know that you need to recommend against it for healthy. I, I don't, you know, we've talked about this before. I think we're pretty much in agreement. The, the, the positive effects of vaccination for kids are so small, given right. how mild Omicron is and how well young people have performed against COVID anyway, that it's hard to kind of find a real discernible benefit. And also the harms to kids are, are, of the vaccine are, are slight, but not non-existent. Not, right. or maybe you want to do, you'd rather do a one-shot <laughs> regime instead of a two-shot regime mm -hmm. for uh, male teenagers of a, a certain age, they, if you fear with the, the myocarditis. I mean, we've even ha heard, um, you know, health officials in good standing with the CDC who right. are part of Team Blue have actually even said that. They said, mm -hmm. well, if you're so concerned about it, just get the first shot. Right. Sanjay Gupta said that. We right. had somebody on this show which, say that. Which is right. great, although that, the CDC has not right. given permission for, for all you right. must do exactly as the CDC says type people. That's not in keep. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. So I don't know. I 
you know, it, it should be an individual case by case basis. Yeah. Talk to your daughter. Except, I mean, there are <clears throat> immunocompromised and right. uh, the, the obese, severe obese kids who do, if you look at the data, they do have a still not as bad a time with COVID as, as older people, but they, they can have a rougher time, even with Omicron. And mm-hmm. uh, I would certainly vaccinate my child if they fell into one of those categories. And I might vaccinate my child anyway. You might talk to your doctor about it or whatever. But uh, so I don't know. Right. That's fine. Right. And it's Saki's point that teens and six-year-olds are a different case, too. She wouldn't come right out and say that because then that would suggest that, well, maybe the six-year-old parents ought to you know, think, well, maybe we don't need to do this for the six to seven-year-olds. In New York, but five-year-olds are, and under still going to mask. They, they said I that sh- recently. Sh- the, uh, Eric Adams, who is a, kind of a, not a super liberal person on a lot of stuff. Um, the health guy. freak. He's a health freak. Right. Or, he vegan? But didn't he claim to be vegan, but he's not, <laughs> or he's eating fish or something? I don't remember. Maybe exactly he's into fish now. But also, yeah, and to your point about immunocompromised and, and obese, this is Florida we're talking about. You know, and Florida is in the United States of America. There are a lot of obese children. And the risk becomes that parents say, well, my kid's not that bad. You know, my kid's fine. He's healthy. She's healthy. No, well, your, your kid is, your kid your kid is kid not is as fat. healthy as you, as you <laughs> think the kid is. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when Saki points out to, who points to, a, you're three times you know, more likely to get hospitalized if you were unvaccinated as a teenager, that's, again, that's different than the six-year-olds and seven-year-olds. And so many people wonder, wait a minute, if they've said that the vaccine is effectively harmless, not, not totally harmless, but effectively harmless for kids that are zero to two or six months to two, why haven't they approved it yet? And the answer is because Omicron is so weak. <laughs> right. You can't, in order to show some benefit, there has to be some, something to benefit it against. Right. And because so many kids... At, at 18 months, two years, who get Omicron, recover so quickly. And you also can't that show... you can't compare it. But, and if it was know. just, right, it's no... Da- it's, uh, the COVID isn't very dangerous for kids, but we want to vaccinate them so they're not going to spread it to others. I mean, that is still a little bit of the theory, but like we know that people, if you're vaccinated, right. you can still get it, you can still spread it. It's less likely, but it, Omicron, super contagious. You know, the next... God willing, the next variant will be even more contagious and much, much even milder, even milder as the way these things tend to go. But it's not, I, I don't think you can make the, and really people are not so much making the case anymore, even the public health officials. Be, you know, before it was, you got to get vaccinated, protect somebody else. Now it's like, well, really, vaccination is a self-protecting thing. It is, it is for your own health because it doesn't, it, it, it maybe it impacts the, the likelihood of spread, certainly. But it doesn't, it's, it's not like, well, you're not going to spread it now. It's you're not black or white. No, it's, it's very much not. And I, I feel like because of the CDC's kind of rigidity on this, there was some room over the last two years for somebody to just come forward with kind of a reasonable middle ground and become extraordinarily popular. And, and because I think people were very much looking for that. And somebody like Aladipo could have worked in that space. And just said, Here, here's all the information. You make the decisions for yourself. In, instead, he, he, everything becomes tribal. I know. If, and you, you can even hear him in that clip starting, he's just using the kind of tribal language of COVID, saying, I'm Team Red. And you can, just, you can tell that I'm Team Red. 
And immediately, all of these parents who are team blue, but are actually like you know thinking through the data and trying to figure out what's best for their family, are, then are going to be turned off by that. And, and then they'll look him up and be like, oh, he was with America's Frontline Doctors, which has made tens of millions of dollars selling hydroxychloroquine. Right, yeah, that's the, I, I don't want to hear about quack cures anymore, they don't work. And I, I want to hear a, a pro-vaccination message, for, especially for the elderly and the immunocompromised, for everyone over 50, uh, you know, my age and older. Um, kids, I don't care, it doesn't matter. Right. And, and then no more, no more masks and other lockdowns and other mitigation efforts, efforts if, you've, if you've taken that step, and no quack cures. And that, that is the middle right. ground I wanted to hear. And you're, yeah. it's, you can't slot anyone into that because it's got to be Team Blue or Team Red. Yeah, and one of the ways he first went viral was there was this protest at the Supreme Court where this America's frontline doctors, he was also there, where they were just pushing hydroxychloroquine really hard. And, you know, there's still people that say if, if they'd have just listened to us with hydroxy, we would have saved... They, they, they say different numbers, half a million to millions of lives. And there was a study in Nature that looked at 28 clinical uh, studies of uh, hydroxychloroquine on COVID, and it found that actually mortality among people who took hydroxychloroquine was higher. It wasn't, wasn't huge, but it was actually higher. Yeah. So it's like if, if it worked and you had 28 studies looking at it, you wouldn't have a result that went in the yeah, wrong direction. Yeah, the data on hydroxy is pretty, <laughs> pretty clear. It's but you can't there's an entire tribe out there that yeah. you say that they're like, well, you're just a farmer shill. Yeah. You just want people to die. There are farmer shills out there. Though. There are farmer right. shills. <laughs> you complain about them. <laughs> I do complain about them. And when we're back on YouTube, they'll be sponsoring our program. <laughs> yeah, when we're when we're back on if. YouTube. If, hmm. if we're still very cross about that. Uh, the U.S. Surgeon General, by the way, has cracked down on big tech misinformation of COVID-19. And Rachel Bovar will join us to discuss that. Stay tuned. Last week, while everyone was scrutinizing the reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. Surgeon General was asking big tech for help. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy submitted a formal request for details about the scale of COVID-19 misinformation. This includes the number of users exposed to misinformation, the source, as well as information on people who sold unproven COVID products and treatments. The deadline for big tech to comply is May 2nd, but there is no penalty if the request for data is denied. Joining us now to weigh in on this is Rachel Bovard, Policy Director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Welcome, Rachel. Good morning, guys. And so, you know what sucks? Yeah. Big tech. Big, don't big like tech. <laughs> don't like them. Big tech. And so, yeah, Rachel, this, this uh, interview will not be broadcast on the big tech platform known as YouTube.com. Uh, Our friends. And, uh, Robbie's friends, friends over at YouTube. Yes. Turning. Friends like these. Now that his book is out, they, they're like, we have no use for this guy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Deep platform Ban- immediately. Deep platform right away. Uh, yes. yes. Love being humiliated. Anyway. <laughs> About this, um, so big tech. Talking we're talking about big tech, and they're being asked to let the Surgeon General know, you know, how much I guess misinformation, how much misinformation that they spread uh, throughout the pandemic. What do you make of what do you make of this request from Murthy? Well, it's wildly inappropriate, but I would love to pretend this hasn't been happening. But this is prism all over again. Uh, you know, I get asked a lot. You know, why did you start? getting interested in big tech to begin with? Well, it was the Snowden leaks. And what the Snowden leaks uh, revealed were that these companies were doing exactly this. They were just doing it silently. They were throwing open the back door to the government uh, for the government to troll 
you know, their users essentially to gather intel on their users, photos, voice recordings, emails, all these things. Now, this request is just specific to COVID-19 misinformation, but it's the same premise. And now instead of back in 2013 when it was a secret, right, and when it came out, everyone was outraged, people are just doing it in public. Uh, you know, the, the aperture has widened so much that I think people understand that this hand in glove relationship between the tech giants and their business model, which is to gather all this information on you, now has a benefit to the government and the government feels entitled to ask for it. And that's just shocking. It's, it's just wildly inappropriate. And I hope these companies do push back very publicly. Well, and there's such a weird, you know, all encompassing definition here, misinformation. Like, what does that even include? Because so much of what has been called misinformation and what was called misinformation on tech platforms, right, by the government and, you know, at the government's behest, then by the platforms, you know, some of what they were doing all along, they were being instructed, you know, asked in air quotes by the government. But, what, you know, what about the, like the lab leak? Is that yeah, they want information on, on, the, what, yeah. Yeah, on the lab leak theory, the misinformation of the lab leak theory that now is not even considered misinformation because it's an open enough question whether that was the, the origin for COVID. So, you know, so much of this misinformation isn't even misinformation anymore. Well, it goes to the idea that misinformation has been coming from the government itself, right? If the, de if the definition we're using of misinformation, you know, is are things that, you know, were considered socially wrong and banned that are now socially allowed and we're allowed to talk about them. You have the lab leak theory. You have this idea that, you know, if you remember, all these accounts were being banned for questioning whether the vaccine really did prevent the spread of COVID. We now know the CDC is like, actually, no, it doesn't. So again, these these things have flipped because this is a virus that evolves and we learn new things. And science itself, the pursuit of scientific inquiries, the overturning of what was considered conventional wisdom. And so I think to go in and just open the door and say, here's our definition of misinformation. Give us all you know, the data on your users and the intel is just completely inappropriate you know, for the reason you point out, but also just the premise itself. You should never be going and asking for this with, you know, to begin with. I, I just think, and this is, this is the second time, by the way, the Surgeon General has done this. He did this again in July uh, when he put out like a 22-page manual about what misinformation looks like. You saw Jen Psaki demand that users get banned from the platform or from the podium at the White House. So this is, a, I think, for, the, for, for social media and tech companies, if they're going to make any kind of stand at all on behalf of their users, it has to be now. And aren't there supposed to be two things that happen in response to something like this? Ideal, ideally, or in a different era, right, the companies just refuse because they say, no, we don't have to do that. And civil liberties organizations, right, are supposed to defend them against this kind of government, you know, grabbing at, at information and at speech, uh, but if, but that's not happening, as far as I can tell. Yeah, RIP the ACLU on right. this question and right. on so many questions. You know, because I think you do have this, like, element uh, in society. I, I, a lot of it, I think, exists on the left, although, Ryan, you may want to push back on that. This idea that, like, you can just police this speech, that some sort of speech is dangerous, that misinformation must be banned, that in America we are suddenly not allowed to talk about what we want, to read what we want, to see information that we might disagree with. And that sort of cartel-like uh, attitude toward what people say on social media is coming through the policy channels. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous development in, in sort of the idea of free speech in America. Yeah, and I wouldn't really push back on that. There is a civil liberties faction within the left, but it is an increasingly small uh, faction. And in, in fact, there are you know a ton of people who are you know 
progressives and fans of this show said, you know, really unfortunate what YouTube did to you, really idiotic that they did that, but I'm glad that they're cracking down on the orange man. So <laughs> if you guys are collateral damage, then, you know, at, at least the orange man's getting the hammer. So, yeah, the, it, there is a strong strain in, on, on the left that is that identifies exactly with what you just said. So and in addition to demanding misinformation data from tech platforms, the Surgeon General is also asking healthcare providers and the public to submit details on how misinformation negatively impacted patients and their communities. I mean, the, these are things that it feels to me like if, if Johns Hopkins or other epidemiologists want to study this, that's, that's a good, that's a fine thing. And, uh, you know, the New York Times publishes data on hospitalizations by vaccinated status and unvaccinated status. And I think there's a public health interest in finding out why it was that those people decided not to get vaccinated and the other people uh, decided you know, to uh, so that they can then, you know, sharp, you know, hone their message for next time. I think the question is where the data comes from. I don't know. How do you, how do you, of course, when, like, you know, when, when, uh, when Cambridge Analytica claimed falsely, as it turned out, right. that it could kind of do, that it sort of had gotten some information from Facebook on users and could use that to more accurately target campaign advertising, uh, everyone in liberal world lost their right. mind at the <laughs> threat to our, the existential threat because of that, which turned out to be not even something they could do and was not threatening whatsoever. Right. No, it's just, <laughs> it's just kind fake, of funny. Like normal fake stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, Rachel, what's appropriate to you? Obviously, to me, public health researchers are entitled to try to survey the public about their attitudes toward health measures. Right. So, but where, where is the line? Yeah, private lines of inquiry, you know, are welcome in America, right? To your point, if hospitals want to look into this, if public health agents you know, or public health professionals want to look into it, that's one thing. But what we have now is the government not only directing these sort of private businesses, although I would even take issue with that moniker at this point, to open the door on their users, but they are now telling doctors and hospitals to narc on individual you know, patient anecdotes and to talk about misinformation in a way that the White House is framed for them. And so this, again, this whole COVID-19 you know, speech crackdown has been about one thing, and that's about narrative control. And this is one more element that we're seeing. And the sort of shamelessness uh, with which they go about it, I think, is the most disturbing feature. And I think this, uh, frankly, I do think this has policy implications because I do think any government, right, is it, they are not going to willingly walk away from the ability con to control what is said on some of the biggest speech platforms in the world. This is a bipartisan uh, interest. You saw Donald Trump try to do this during the BLM riots to control what was put on Facebook. Uh, you know, and now you, you're seeing the Biden administration do the same thing about COVID. No government is going to willingly relinquish that power. So I do think that there does need to be some policy parameters around third, the sharing of third party data. You know, off these platforms, you're already seeing the government purchase bulk metadata on individuals sold by individual apps and platforms. That's a completely lawless space. And then on top of that, I also think there's implications for, you know, down the road, you know, the way that you sort of limit, if you are concerned about viral misinformation, which I think in some cases, you know, can be a real threat, the way to deal with that is not to control what is said or try to limit speech or control speech or define it. It is you break the speech cartel entirely, right? The reason the Biden administration went to Facebook in July they were the biggest platform they went to is because they know that they control 
the discourse, right? It's, there's a reason they're not focusing on Rumble, for instance. They're focusing on the biggest, the, the platforms who are the speech titans. If you break that monopoly control over the discourse, you, you have a little bit more decentralization here, then you are going to actually limit, uh, by definition, how far viral misinformation can spread. Yeah, and the whole approach feels too blunt to be serious. Like I said, I'm totally fine with public health officials studying public health attitudes. Like that's, it's important for them. And, it, and it's even more important over the last two years because they obviously had no idea how to communicate with the public. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in now. But it feels so like it, tech platforms yeah. just don't do a great job distinguishing actual misinformation from people yeah. just <laughs> talking about the existence of misinformation. I, I agree. Break up, break up YouTube. I agree. Nationalize I'm not even, even going to say a word against it today. I'm just not in the mood. <laughs> Let it go. Fair Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Minnesota Congressman Ilhan Omar joins us in the studio next to discuss the White House's potential talks with Saudi Arabia amid the global oil and gas price surge. Stay tuned for that. got some breaking news. Bloomberg's Jennifer Jacobs reports that the U.S. will indeed ban imports of Russian oil and gas with an official White House announcement now expected at 10.45 a.m. this morning. This comes only days after Axios's Hans Nichols reported that President Biden is considering a visit this spring to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia with, quote, hat in hand. The bending of the knee is aimed at coaxing the kingdom's de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, into increasing oil output with the goal of reducing gas prices. The potential trip comes after The Intercept reported in February that Saudi King Salman had rejected Biden's previous request to increase output. During the campaign, Biden was particularly harsh on MBS, promising to end support for the war in Yemen and slamming him as a pariah for the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the, in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. And I would also, as pointed out, I would end, end the subsidies that we have, end the sale of material to the Saudis, where they're going in and murdering children and they're murdering innocent people. And so they have to be held accountable. On Monday, Democratic Congressman Tom Malinowski cited Saudi's role in tightening production for high gas prices, saying one reason we're paying $4 a gallon for gas is that a Saudi prince is angry that we criticized him for murdering a Washington Post journalist. If the alternative to relying on a Russian tyrant's oil is a Saudi tyrant's oil, well, maybe we should be less reliant on oil. Following the news of Biden's planned trip, Representative Ilhan Omar pushed back, arguing our response to Putin's immoral war shouldn't be to strengthen our relationship with the Saudis, who are currently causing the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet in Yemen. Yemenis might not matter to some geopolitically, but their humanity should. This is a wildly immoral act. Joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. We're so happy to have you with us. You're our first guest in studio since the pandemic began. So welcome. Glad to be here. So can you elaborate you know, on the comments you made? Obviously, we've been very critical on the show of, and everyone has been critical, obviously, of Saudi Arabia and their behavior. But are we in an environment now where you know, we, maybe we don't have the luxury of taking this, huge, this stance against them, given the reality of what's going on with Russia? 
Yeah, look, I, I hardly see a principled stance here, right? If our issue is that um, we are unwilling to buy oil um, from a dictator uh, who is waging a war on a weaker neighboring country, um, I can hardly see where the principle is in going to Saudi Arabia and cozying up to another tyrant. And you, you've been kind of outspoken about the way that the media has covered the suffering of Ukrainian people, talking about their blue eyes, and their, this is in Europe, and Europe's such a peaceful nation, uh, suggesting that it's different than other conflicts around the world. So the, it is interesting that some of the conditions do seem to be the same. You have, you have a dictator kind of attacking another country. How much resonance are you, are you finding that argument has among your colleagues at this point, saying, look, if, if it's wrong for Putin to bomb Ukraine, it's also wrong, wrong for Saudi Arabia to bomb Yemen. What, is, is that resonating with your colleagues? I hope it is. Um, I think, you know, we tend to think that we approach the, these issues in a moral way. We say we are in the business of defending democracy. We are in the business of defending human rights. Um, and if that's the case, it doesn't make any sense to me that we are so eager to condemn Putin, right, who is waging an immoral war. Um, but we are not when it comes to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. We have over 200 million Yemenis that are displaced in this given moment. There are about 8 million Yemenis that are in the brick of starvation. Over 300,000 Yemenis have been killed since the start of that war. 11,000 of them are children. We've seen pictures time and time again of the devastation this war in Yemen um, has had uh, on innocent lives. But you don't see sanctions being imposed on Saudi Arabia or the Emirates. We continue to do business with them. Biden had said that MPS is a pariah. Apparently, he's not because we are still friends with him. We're still in communications with him. When I introduced my legislation to sanction MPS, there was a pushback from the White House and the State Department that said we are not going to do that. Uh, we still went ahead and sold weapons to them. Uh, this is a contradiction and a hypocrisy, and we have to be willing to call that out. Well, and we have some footage of Biden, in fact, pledging to end the war in Yemen. Let's play that. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we are ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. But is the reality just that, you know, as much as we would like to do that, I don't know if Americans are going to be willing to pay so much more for gas, right? So what's the alternative if, if, we're, if we're taking this hard stance against Russia and we, if we were to maintain the, the, our stance against, against Saudi Arabia, you know, what is, what is the alternative for giving the American people something they can live with or else like Biden, the Biden administration is going to be finished if gas prices are so high, the reelection you know, uh, options are, are very limited. Yeah, I mean, 
there's there's two different things, right? There's there's the moral argument and the political argument. Um, if we were making the moral ar- moral argument, obviously this is against our principles to go down this route. If we're making the political argument, we have an opportunity to lessen our dependency on oil and fossil fuels. Um, we certainly know that uh, renewable energies are more consistently reliable, uh, and we know that they are cost-effective. The measures, for example, that we passed within the Build Back Better um, will save about $500 uh, for the American people. Um, we also know uh, that, uh, that, that there are clear opportunities ahead of us um, in transitioning to re- renewable energy uh, if we choose to go down that path. On the fossil fuel front, the White House sent a delegation recently to Venezuela, opening up conversations with them. Apparently, uh, and Maduro said publicly that if, if the United States wants to buy Venezuelan oil, he's more than happy to sell it to the United States. The refineries in the Gulf are, are built specifically for Venezuelan crude. And there's also the ongoing talks with Iran. Uh, we, we get reports that you know, 95% of, of the way there, that's, that could be, what, a million barrels a day or something coming out of Iran back onto the market. Would you support uh, uh, normal relations with both of those countries in, at, at, in order to balance out what's not coming from Russia? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we are going to Venezuela and that the Biden administration officials are going to be visiting and they're going to have a conversation. I do hope that we, when they are there, um, that they do get to have um, a conversation with the Venezuelan people and see the devastation that our sanctions have had on the people and get to realize that, you know, our crippling sanctions on Venezuela hasn't weakened Maduro's position uh, and that this is a turning point uh, for us when we are having conversations about the kind of sanctions that we impose and, you know, get rid of this notion uh, that somehow crippling sanctions will lead to regime change um, and uprising within the people uh, that are economically devastated, that they will ultimately have a a democracy. It hasn't happened in Cuba. It hasn't happened in Iran. It certainly hasn't happened uh, in in Venezuela. Uh, And I think the Iran case is is very different, right, because we are trying to stop them from developing nuclear weapons. And and as as we are watching what's happening right now, in Russia, it is always a good thing to not have a nuclear-powered uh, country that is an adversary to us. Well, do you think this, you know, what you just outlined, the sanctions not working in the long term, uh, creating regime change, does that mean our, our, our current strategy with Russia does not necessarily, you know, bode well trying to punish them, some, to some extent punishing not just the regime, but, but the Russian people? Uh, you know, how, how confident or hopeful are you in the strategy that's being pursued right now is going to bring an end, you know, to the conflict in Ukraine without us getting more involved or doing like a no-fly zone, which, you know, so most, most people, most political figures in both parties are, I think, wisely against. Yeah, yeah, we certainly should not have a no-fly zone um, on, on the table as, as we have these conversations. Look, I support sanctions on Putin and his allies. Um, I think... When you engage in an immoral war, um, there should be consequences. 
Uh, but do I think that the um, broadband, you know, um, broad-based sanctions that we are imposing on, on Russia is going to have a devastating impact on Putin? No, I think they're going to have a devastating impact on the people. And if we say we support, you know, Russians who are anti-war, who are taking it to the streets, we ultimately do not want to have um, sanctions that are going to hurt their lives and livelihoods. And I think that there has to be a balancing act and we can't continue uh, to deploy the same playbook that has failed us over and over again. There has to be a measured way that we engage. Obviously, sanctions is a tool within our toolbox, and we have to use that tool in the most sufficient way uh, that, that is not going to create more enemies for us and, and have a, a devastating consequence. So just as an example, Ukraine and Russia combined produce 30 percent of the world's wheat. Right. And as we talk about hunger in, in Africa and many parts of of the Middle East, people are dependent on it, uh, whether it is Sudan, whether it's um, Ethiopia and, and other places. And so if wheat production um, is, is impacted uh, with, with these sanctions, uh, we're, we're going to have you know, more people that are, that are uh, fleeing. We're going to have more um, refugees in a time where we have the highest number of displaced people in the history of, of the world. We can't add to that. And you talked about the pivot to clean energy. You know, Joe Manchin recently said, hey, look, if we do you know, a certain amount of tax increases, I'm fine with spending half of that on whatever Democrats want to spend it on. It's up to you guys to decide. He said, it seems like you want to do environment. To, by environment, he means the, the climate spending. It's about $700 billion or so. That's nowhere near what the original Build Back Better Act was. But you know, if he's being serious... Uh, do you think progressives in the House would say, okay, let's, let's take that deal if it's on the table? And do you have any indications of how serious he is? Have, have there been back-channel conversations to sort out, was this just chatter in the hallway, or is this, is this real? Like, is, can we start writing legislation? I mean, until we start writing legislation, uh, the seriousness of anything Joe Manchin uh, says um, needs to be taken with a grain of salt, right? Um, this, is, this is not uh, somebody um, whose word can, can be taken serious. I think the Progressive Caucus is ready and eager uh, to engage in any conversation that moves us in, in the direction um, of uh, moves, moving away from our dependency on uh, fossil fuel um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of any conversations that have been started um, outside of the remarks that he's made uh, last Sunday. We understand that President Biden is going to announce, you know, this ban on Russian oil imports later today, I think. What do you make of that strategy? Does that fit in with the you know punishing Putin specifically in the short term, but doesn't that won't that also have you know devastating uh, economic consequences also for the people of Russia? So what do you you know what do you think? Yeah, about that's it? not only going to have a devastating impact of the people of Russia, but on Europe as well. Right. Um, and you know I, I think 
that when when we, we again when we are having these conversations, um, they they can't be about just the the immediate uh, gratifying um, uh, uh, response that we want to come up with, right? Whether it is uh, uh, politically or morally, we have to think about what this means a year from now, what this means two years, three years from now, um, and and I think ultimately this is not going to end well um, for the, the, the actual people of, of Russia, and it's not going to end well um, for the, the people of Europe as well. So you would be a no on that, on banning Russian oil, or a yes temporarily? What, if it, is it, and what, do you think it will come to the House floor? I know the Ways and Means Committee was working in a bipartisan fashion to craft some type of legislation. I don't know if the White House can just simply do it. Uh, my my understanding is that there is a legislation that we might be considering sometime today um, and or tomorrow, um, and that legislation uh, does not just have uh, a ban on oil, but it has other um, and desirable uh, sanctions um, that that I will not be supporting. And what do you make of the uh, offer made by Putin yesterday? that Zelensky rejected, but said he was open to entertaining parts of it. And the offer was basically, you have to rewrite your constitution to make Ukraine neutral. You have to include in the constitution that these two separatist uh, republics are now independent republics, and you have to recognize Crimea. Maybe there was a couple other smaller mm -hmm. things. That, so they rejected the overall offer, but he did say he was open to talking about the separatist regions and the status of those. Where do you come down on that question? Because it, the, ultimately, on the one hand, it's for Ukrainians to decide. But on the other hand, it's, it's for the world to decide at what point we're continuing to be willing to go to war or, or economic war. Mm. Oh, and do those separatist regions rise to that level? I mean, I, I think um, Zelensky is, is smart to, to reject um, the, the proposal um, that, that I think is, is very naive um, and uh, stupefied in, in, on some level um, to, to think that you can dictate uh, the, the, the rewriting of a constitution for a country um, or that you can decide its borders. Um, and, you know, there was some suggestion about appointing a prime minister. Um, it just sounds ridiculous to me. I mean, I, I don't think we would accept that as American citizens if some country was doing that. I don't think anybody would accept it from us if we were to, to dictate um, the, those kind of things. Um, but I, I do think that there, there has to be right, um, a, a decision um, that is made by the Ukrainians um, on what they're willing to accept and negotiate uh, in order to have peace. Uh, the, the amount of destruction that is taking place in their country by the Russians um, is appalling and heartbreaking. Uh, the number of people who are fleeing, that is now, I think, close to two million um, within just a little over a week, um, is, is something that we haven't seen um, in, in my lifetime. Uh, and I think, it, you know, uh, at some point, uh, we have to get serious about, um, you know, how, how do we get in the business of um, uh, advancing peace? Yeah, Putin has said that even the current level of sanctions, this was even before the 
oil uh, import ban has said that is akin to an act of war. You know, how uh, seriously or nervously should we take the fact that we have this this nuclear superpower, you know, doing this unconscionable invasion of a neighboring country, and we, we the U.S., do not want to, to get into World War III, obviously, where you maybe have millions or billions of people dying, but also we cannot, it cannot be okay for Russia to, there has, there would come a point where we would have to do more than we're doing now if Russia were to just start marching across Europe. So do, do we assume that that Putin is a rational actor and, you know, does, does not want to escalate into nuclear conflict and, you know, we, and we can try to figure out his strategy from that sense? Or, or is, is there an actual concern that, I, you know, I hear, like, he's gone off the deep end, he's suicidal, that kind of stuff. I don't really think that's the case, but, you know, what is your, what is your interpretation? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we have to take the threats that he's making seriously. We have to take them seriously. Um, and... You know, I I know that we 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 did take the threats he made previously um, uh, more serious, maybe even more seriously than the Ukrainians did. Um, and I and I think it's important um, to to realize that at at this point, every threat that he makes needs to be um, responded to in a measured way. Because what we ultimately don't want to do is react in a way that escalates this war um, and escalates um, his reactions to, you know, the the, the actions that we take. Um, And, you know, diplomacy doesn't end um, when war begins. Uh, the, The engagement in diplomacy has to continue. I think our administration, NATO allies, the Ukrainians, the Russians, everybody needs to continue to engage in diplomacy. Uh, The longer this war continues, the more destruction it will be for the Ukrainians um, and the more that, you know, there there is going to be a destruction uh, to world order. And you mentioned earlier the Emiratis' role in the in the Yemen war. The, the UAE has also, as you know, long been a haven for Russian oligarchs. And over the last 12 days or so, they've really rolled out the red carpet. You can just follow the oligarch plane tracker. Lots of people heading over over thing? to Dubai. Yeah, this, this uh, Florida college student started one. It's great. It's like it's a Twitter account where you can follow the oligarchs all all around the planet. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah, Wow, okay. And so many of them are winding up in Dubai, Mm -hmm. uh, where they already had tons of their assets parked Mm -hmm. because it has become this kind of money laundering haven for the global economy. Is the U.S. putting any pressure on the Emiratis for their responsibility in in creating a safe space for these oligarchs as, as the world is coming down on them? Or are we looking the other way right now? I think when it comes to um, the Emiratis, we have always looked away. Um, you know, the, the Saudis and the, the Emiratis had a big role in crushing the ups, uh, uprisings in uh, Bahrain and other, other parts of the Middle East. Um, the Emiratis have uh, had a role in the coup in Sudan. Uh, they continue to have a role in uh, destabilizing Libya. They continue to have a role in what's the conflict in Tigray. Um, in Ethiopia, they 
continue to have a role in my own home country, uh, Somalia. They have a role in Trying everything. Trying the Jordanian government. <laughs> the Jordanian yeah. government. Uh, and, and we remain silent. Uh, and we, you know, as recently as a few months ago, sold them weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, and with 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 little um, consideration for their uh, a brazen um, uh, disturbing actions um, across the Middle East and, and Africa, uh, and so to think now that we you know somehow um, would condemn them uh, for the actions that they are taking uh, in rolling out the red carpet, as you said, um, for the oligarchs in uh, Russia, um, to me just isn't, isn't a feasible thing. I, I do hope uh, that the administration does get serious um, about our relationship with the Emirates, our relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, because we can't continue to say, you know, we are um, doing everything that we can to defend democracy in Ukraine while our best friends are, um, you know, dictators in, in the Middle East um, who jail dissidents, who kill journalists, who sell their drones to, to kill children, who are overthrowing um, governments, who are crushing um, uprisings uh, and, and, and allowing um, for whole regions to, to be destabilized and using their resources, their oil that we buy from them to do so. It can feel like our government is playing a, a board game, like it's risk or something. On this turn, you're allied with these people and fighting these people. On your next turn, maybe it's different. Pick a dictator for today. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, you're our first in-studio guest in two years, so we're so happy to have you. Yeah, thank you. Up next, Kim Iverson will join us with author Tom Hartman to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. Stick around. In his new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy, author Tom Hartman explains how big data has not only invaded our privacy, but also left us vulnerable to domestic predators and foreign threats, and argues how former President Donald Trump opened the door to Russia. Host of the Tom Hartman program and author of The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy, the Rise of Surveillance Threatens Us and Our Democracy, Tom Hartman joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Hey, good morning, Kim and Robbie and, and Ryan. It's great to see you all. Great to see you as well. So tell us more uh, about the book. Uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of fears about, you know, what kind of information tech companies collect on us, how that makes its way into the government's hands, foreign actors. So, you know, what what light can you shed on 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 that process that you've uncovered in your research? Sure. Well, domestically, uh, the book basically breaks out two kinds of big brothers. There's the big government big brother. And uh, the examples that I open the book with are the stories of the Puritans in New England, um, basically, you know, whipping women for speaking out against the church and uh, and slavery, you know, the South turning into basically a police state. Uh, democracy ended in the South around 1835, 1840. And so we had a, a, a basically an oligarchy attack a democracy, which is we call the Civil War. Um, so that's kind of the, the historical background. But to today, we now have both government, 
big brothers, you know, through things like the Patriot Act, but also big brother times of government all around the world. I mean, this is the fourth time Russia has attacked Ukraine. The first two attacks were cyber attacks in 2015 and 2017. Um, and uh, as well as, you know, after, after they took Ukraine, as well as, uh, you know, big brother here in the United States. So uh, there's, there's a lot of territory to cover. And, and Tom, I do want to ask a question about the book, but also how do you write so fast? You're one of the most prolific authors, and, and these are and these are good books too. It's not it's not as if you're just tossing these off. What what is Thank your what's your approach to book writing? A lot of people after they finish a book, uh, it's such a painful process. They need a couple years to recover, um, back, but pretty quickly you're you're right back at it. Back back in the '80s, I was writing for Ziff Davis. I was doing a bunch of magazines and you know popular computing and stuff. Like that. I was a contributing editor to seven different magazines. And I was visiting a friend, Michael Curlin, an old, a novelist, an old friend, and he had this 300-page manuscript ready to go to the publisher. And I'm like, Michael, how do you do that? Because I thought he was going to answer like ginseng or something, you know. And uh, he said, he said, I write five pages a day, five double-spaced pages a day. And he said, if you do that every day, five days a week at least, you will produce at least a book a year, and, and you can technically do two books a year. And so wow. I came home and said to my wife, I'm going to write 10 pages a day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I wrote the, I over, the, over the next two years, I wrote the three of the world's worst novels. But I learned how to write. And every day, if you just spend, you know, two, three, four hours every single day writing, you, you know, I've been producing two of these books a year now for four yeah. years. I was going to say, I feel like we just had you on talking about your other book fairly recently. So Ryan's got a great point here. OK, I'm not losing my mind. I thought yeah. that, too. No. <laughs> right, right. OK, <laughs> you know, writers write. If you don't write, you can't call yourself a writer. So how would you say Donald Trump in particular? So you say that Donald Trump purposefully opened the door for Russia to to do what exactly and how? Uh, when when the first cyber attack of Ukraine happened, the Obama administration uh, created a new cyber agency inside the White House or under the aegis of the White House. They were actually in the Eisenhower office building right next door, um, appointed a, uh, a leader to it. Uh, as I recall, his last name was Daniels and, uh, you know, hired like, you know, a, a senior staff and started acquiring contractors and to build out American cybersecurity specifically against Russian uh, threats. But when Donald Trump came into office, he fired this guy, shut down the office, and within a year, we discovered that the Russians had not only infiltrated uh, the remnants of that office and the remnants of the White House, but were apparently in uh, a half a dozen other agencies. They were in commerce, we know, they were in transportation, I mean, literally, sitting inside the servers in the United States. So when Trump let, so Trump had basically shut down our protections, our cyber protections against Russia. When he left office, when, when Biden came in, this was, you know, the first job that Biden had was rebuilding that agency and trying to get the Russians out of our computers. And we still don't know if they're out of our computers and the agency is still being rebuilt. But uh, the damage that Donald Trump did to our cybersecurity, I mean, this was right after the Ukraine went in and shut down 10% of or Russia went into Ukraine, um, you know, this after the Crimea thing and shut down 10% of all the computers, took down power stations, browned out 200, blacked out 250,000, quarter million people in Ukraine, shut down the ability of people to use their credit cards to buy gas, uh, shut down all, all of the gas pumps in the region, um, uh, turned off the stores. 
Uh, I mean, it, it, they literally shut the country down, or at least a large chunk of the country, for a few days as, as kind of a warning shot across the bow. And that's what animated, in large part, the Obama administration to do something, which Trump reversed. Why do you think we haven't seen them do that as part of this invasion? Because some Western people were speculating that, that, that this would be part of the invasion. They would take down the Internet, take down power grids. They haven't, for the most right. part. Why, yeah, why, do you, why do you think they haven't? We all fully expected that they would that they would repeat that. But uh, one of the other things that the Obama administration did when that happened back in 2015 and 2017, um, or actually in 2015, by 2017 it was Trump. Um, but one of the things that we did is we provided them, and the world actually provided them, with cybersecurity experts. And I mean, you had almost 10% of all the computers in Ukraine turned into bricks by this Russian by this first Russian attack. And so what the Ukrainians did is, uh, as, as far as we can tell, I mean, we're kind of guessing on all this. Uh, this is not the kind of stuff that governments make public. But, uh, you know, uh, put together a fairly robust cybersecurity system to prevent that from happening again. And Ukraine does have a lot of kind of IT power, right? I mean, yeah. I, I just say that because I know that companies all across the United States are constantly outsourcing tech work. To Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. And the Obama administration encouraged their building that kind of infrastructure and, and Ukraine and also the other Baltic states. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking on Skype. Skype was uh, developed by two guys in Estonia, you know, another one of the countries, you know, just above Latvia and Lithuania that uh, and below Finland that Russia is looking at, you know, with, <laughs> with an evil eye, as it were, or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. So your argument isn't so much about the election, uh, you know, interference, because that's um, and then that's something that gets discussed a lot. You know, when we talk about the threat of Russia, you know, a lot of Democrats, a lot of mainstream media are, you know, are talking about the disinformation campaign, the Facebook, all that kind of stuff. You know, what, what are your does your book address that subject? Yeah, I, I've got a couple chapters on the on the. Uh, the Trump campaign, the 2015-2016 campaign, and how Russia helped them, and and but mostly, I mean, it was it was uh, uh, Cambridge Analytica, you having hacked data out of Facebook, that Facebook just kind of left there for the the world to grab, combined with Facebook's algorithm that pushes sticky and outrageous content, which. Uh, Cambridge Analytica was perfectly willing to exploit. I mean, there were days leading up to the election when over 100,000 different variations of a single ad were, were sent out in one day. Um, people were so granularly targeted, and we really don't even have the information on all this. Facebook has it, but they're not sharing it with the world, and as far as we can tell. Um, you know, most of these ads have never even been seen by anybody. But the data that they have on you, you know, what, what your favorite drink is, whether you've ever ridden a motorcycle, what brand of cigarette you smoke, if you smoke, um, how your relationships are going, whether you're dating. I mean, just all this kind of super granular micro data. They're literally developing ads to target people based on those individual preferences. Yeah, but my understanding is that Cambridge Analytica basically massively over or overhyped what they were actually yeah. able to do with that information, and that there is not at all this direct correlate. Like, yes, we maybe Facebook knows this, and thus we found this out. You know, what kind of cola you like, but 
you know, turning that into an ability to, in a sort of like mind control sense way, send an advertisement to a swing voter, and then they're going to vote for Trump when they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton, or not vote when they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's the, like, that step two in that three-step process basically doesn't exist, as far as I can tell. That was that was largely step one, which was, hey, let's get these, let's push these ads out. Step two then became the the algorithm, Facebook's own algorithm that amplified that message wildly and got it into communities that otherwise probably wouldn't have gotten it. And then step three was the involvement of uh, what appear to be Russian trolls. There might have been trolls from other countries as well, you know, on, on, at scale, which the Mueller report talks about at some length. Um, amplifying that message and and particularly promoting the message. I mean, the main message that the Russian trolls were promoting in 2016 um, was not so much vote for Donald Trump as there's no difference between the two parties or Hillary Clinton hates black people because she talked about super predators. There were messages targeted at uh, weak Democratic voters and messages targeted at the black community very aggressively. And those were hyper amplified. Uh, those, Those weren't necessarily coming out of Cambridge Analytica, but they were hyper amplified by Russian trolls. I was just going to say that to me, those have always been kind of over, overblown because they're up against billions of dollars in other messaging. And so while it's spent by the campaigns themselves, spent by the campaigns and the, and the media, which gets to the more, to me, the more interesting role that it appears that Russia played when they hacked John Podesta's email. And then we're and then the entire campaign from that, that point on was this drip, drip of new emails uh, coming out, which, you know, so you got Hillary Clinton's Goldman Sachs speeches, which is, it's her fault for giving the speech to Goldman Sachs in the first place, and secondly, her fault for not being transparent about it. But that, that role of, you know, hacking and then getting, getting out that information, which then drives tens of millions of dollars worth of coverage, to me, swamped the, the stuff that they were doing on Facebook. I'm curious if you looked closer into that, and if, and if, if you think there's any doubt because there are still some folks out there that say, well, we don't know that that was Russia that hacked Podesta's email. What's, what's your read on that? Yeah, no, I think you're completely right, Ryan. And, and so what we're looking at are, are incremental slices that when you add them all up, get you the electoral votes to become president, even though you lost the election by 3 million votes. So had there not been, for example, that hack that Trump had asked the Russians to do, um, and had those stories not been released and had the Hillary's emails not, then probably Hillary would have won. Or alternatively, you can say had the Cambridge Analytica stuff not happened, then probably Hillary would have won. Or had, you know, I, I see each one of these things as incremental steps, but specifically you were asking about the role of government, you know, in the context of this book, in the role of governments getting into computers. And that's that's what I was speaking to by and large. But I so agree. My, I- I just have one last question for you, Tom. Uh, seems to be two competing ideas just in the title of your book. So I'm wondering if you can help us figure out, you know, kind of reconcile this. So you first say that the rise of, you know, the death of privacy um, and the rise of surveillance has threatened us and our democracy. And then there's also this, you know, big data has invaded, has left us vulnerable to domestic predators and foreign threats. And what we're seeing now, especially since 2016, is that there seems to be, these are two competing ideas. So we see that uh, people are wanting to have more, they wanna crack down harder on these potential uh, foreign threats, but we're having to sacrifice actually our privacy 
in order to have those things. So we're seeing more censorship or we're seeing more surveillance, big brother on us. So how do we have both? How do we maintain and protect our privacy and our individual rights as a free people while also cracking down on these potential threats? Kim, you nailed the question that governments, uh, that the United States government has been struggling with since the George Washington administration, which is, you know, how intrusive can government get before it starts becoming the problem that it's trying to prevent? And, you know, we had the, the firewall between the FBI and CIA for a while, and, you know, one could do domestic and the other couldn't and all that kind of stuff. We've, we've gone through dozens and dozens over the years of iterations of these kind of things. The most recent big one, of course, was the Patriot Act after 9-11, which cobbled together a whole bunch of pieces of legislation that, that by and large, right-wingers had wanted for years and years. Um, but th this, is, this, is, this is the great challenge. I mean, you've identified it. And the, the problem that I'm seeing and that I write about in the book at some length is the massive granularity of data about every single one of us that is held by, by a, a large number of big data companies and bought and sold on a, on a, on a data marketplace um, it, it has the ability to compromise at the individual level um, in, in ways that are pretty shocking. Now, most, mostly this data is being used, this is the domestic stuff, mostly this data is being used right now by these companies to determine whether you can return goods in a store or how long you have to wait on hold when you call a company. Are you a potentially good customer or not based on your habits, um, you know, on your net worth, on things like that. But the, it, it, it's, truly, it's truly astonishing what they have. I mean, it, it, some of these companies that are involved in, uh, that are selling rating services, for example, to landlords or to uh, employers are bragging that they've got 15,000 or 20,000 yeah. individual data points on every single person in their database. Yeah. Wow. Tom Harbin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Kim and Ryan. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. The University of California, Berkeley, was ordered by the state Supreme Court last week to cut its expected enrollment for next year by nearly 3,000 students. The ruling also requires the university to conduct further environmental review of controversial off-campus faculty housing projects. The San Francisco Chronicle reports that this project is considered to be in violation of the California Environmental Quality Act. The law's critics say it's been unfairly wielded by wealthy Berkeley homeowners to stifle new developments in the city's urban areas. And they're right, because that's exactly what this is. This is pathetic, miserable, evil nimbyism. Um, this is why everything costs so much. This is why housing costs so much when you wield environmental law to prevent people from like living where they want to live or developing new things. And that, so, yeah, this is a this is totally absurd. It's insane and bad and wrong. And that's how I feel about it. So Second that. I dare you to disagree. Anyone. No so one, we looked. No the, uh, we, I just wanted to look this up just so that we knew because we were asking, we were trying to figure out how many students were actually at UC Berkeley. So actually, it's a way bigger than I actually thought. I, yeah, UC I said Berkeley, twenty. What, what and, is you it? Know, I thought it was smaller than that. It's actually forty-three thousand students were uh, enrolled right. in twenty twenty, and they but they only have housing and beds apparently for uh, nine ninety-eight hundred students. So all of those other students are having to find housing inside of the Bay Area, somewhere else in the Bay Area. And so that's 
the issue. What's so outrageous about this is that finding housing for college students is the easiest possible thing you can do. Like you build a gigantic tower and put a bunch of dorm rooms in it. Right. Like exactly. you don't you don't even have to do like you know fancy expansive one, two, and three bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. You know, you just stick. You can do four, four people to a two bedroom a little pod apartment. thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. I share. Right. I had a I had a roommate for until what my third year of college, I think. But that would require uh, building something, you know, yeah. higher than two stories. Yeah. And God yeah. forbid anybody in Berkeley allow something like that. God forbid they're precious. We would have this to be. Uh, so I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, it was a little bit different, but the university is very uh, integrated with the city of Ann Arbor. And it was the same thing. The residents, you know, these so-called progressive liberals mm-hmm. who care about Ann- Ann poverty Arbor, super and homelessness, liberal. Yeah. et cetera, would their, the, the, the BS they would come up with to justify preventing the development of, of affordable housing, of, of large, you just need large structures that lots of people can fit in. I would hear the most ridiculous thing, oh, well, wouldn't it be windier if there was another tall building? Like, crap like that you would hear from people. <laughs> no, it's not going to be windier if you build another building. Yeah, but this this whole thing with you, with Berkeley is really interesting because we've got one of the most liberal universities in the country, maybe arguably the lib- most liberal university in the nation, uh, maybe even in the world, we could say. And it's pitting them against environmentalists, but then people are saying, no, the homeowners are actually hiding behind the environmentalists, that the rich homeowners don't, you know, that they don't want. Mm-hmm. So, the, so they're making these claims. So it's really interesting to read about this because it's like, the environmental impact, you know, you've got one side saying, well, the environmental impact is so great that you can't have all of these students and you've got to pit it against one of the nation's most liberal universities. So kind of interesting to see how this is going to play out. It's just right, like but- with the Endangered Species Act, because of the Endangered Species Act, if you find like an endangered species on your property, you have to immediately kill it. You have to kill the animal before exactly. anyone is aware that it's there what? because they'll don't turn your property into a nature preserve or something if you discover it. It's true. Don't, don't oh, do that. Oh, really? It's no. Right. no yeah. Robbie, do yeah. not Oh, my, oh no, the you eagle is nesting on my land. Kill it. Kill it now. I definitely, no. I definitely knew people on the Eastern Shore who, if an eagle tried uh, you know, nesting on top of uh, a piling in a river or something, they would go out and it, it, at night dismantle it. Yep. Uh, really? As, quick, as, quickly be- as, they, as quickly as they could, because once it's in, and there are, there are some, a couple other species as well, once it's in, then now you can't dock there. You can't, like, it, it becomes a gigantic really? it's a, mess. So, there's like mm-hmm. a bunch so, that, so wow. people would go in and illegally dismantle it before anybody noticed They can it. have my house. I'll let them have it. Just find a new house, yeah. <laughs> I'll just find a new house. They'll put, the, they'll put the bald eagle and the college students in your house, Kim, down in, uh, down in L.A. That's yeah. Fine. Well, in L.A., they let the college students sleep in the cars. You know, they, they came out with this news article a few months ago where they were, like, proud of themselves that they were allowing homeless college students to start uh, sleeping in the at least the school's parking lots. So they'd let them park there overnight and give them access to showers, and they were so proud of that. Like, look at what we're doing. Oh, isn't that nice? How nice of them. Yeah. Yeah, the better How about we climate, build more houses. Yeah, the climate solution is denser housing, and yep. that's the thing that taller uh, buildings on, on the grounds of environmentalism. These NIMBYs are protesting. This this ruling uh, comes as new data collected on the Amazon rainforest shows that it's harrowingly close to reaching a tipping point, after which the rainforest would quote be lost with profound implications for the global climate and biodiversity. According to The Guardian, the new analysis is based on real-world satellite observations over the past 30 years. The data doesn't predict when this point might occur, but researchers warned that by the time humankind can detect such a trigger, it would be too late to stop it. And what's different about this research is it's not a model. 
You get the you know people who go on Rogan and will tell you, well, who's that? Who, Jordan Peterson was like, you can't, you can't model the world. The world is too complicated. Why are you even trying to model the world? This isn't a model. This is a satellite image of the shrinking. This is pictures. Like this is in front of our face. And once the Amazon is a kind of net producer of carbon rather than a net sink of carbon, it's it's that that's where the the runaway climate change uh, comes from. I would love to be one of the people that thinks that this is no big deal. So, what, how how would you talk me off the ledge? I feel like I we just hear this a lot, and it never happens. Oh, oh yes, <laughs> now the tipping point. It's right about to happen. To the rainforest be gone? Like about, they've been saying I mean, that my whole the, so, life. But these are satellite pictures saying that. It's like ma- adding, it's massively I they're shrunk. adding uh, trees back to forests all the time because now we're more concerned about deforestation. We understand the problem better. We plant more trees, that whole kind of thing. What this found is that the attempts to regenerate mm-hmm. uh, in the rainforest are no longer as efficient and effective as they used to be around roads and around farmland. And roads and farmland are cutting through the entire rainforest. And so we right. go out and we try to plant a tree or whatever. And the rainforest is like, no, I'm gone. Because if you, right. if you look at where the rainforest is and compare it to Africa, that's sub-Saharan. You know, so once that rainforest is gone, be like, well, yeah, let's just go plant some trees in the Sahara. No, it, it's, think, it's, too com- it's too complex an ecosystem than that. Right. And it is very complex. And I think maybe something that the critics would say is that the earth changes a lot and at one point antarctica was potentially you know a beautiful tropical rainforest and maybe africa was at one point as well and so there's just kind of this ever shifting uh where you know and maybe there's a good reason for that that we don't understand you know that the earth i I mean just from a simple perspective it's sort of like farming you can't constantly farm in the same spot over and over and over again without causing a lot of a lot of problems with the soil and so perhaps the globe you know sort of transfers its rainforests around from time to time and Except next these are thing all you know we're like living in one overall it's like the ants they move to they march off to slaughter they the might, right reference. so maybe no but actually i agree with you kim right there we had we had ice ages because the earth used to be a lot colder even in the middle ages there was the medieval warming period which allowed for the discovery of greenland and even even some pretend little colonies right in in north north uh, eastern shores of canada then it got a lot colder they had to all go back to back to iceland or where else they came from uh, i that would not be good we don't want the earth to be really cold but, but the point right. being that there's not some natural like beautiful state of nature where the earth is just harmonious and perfect and then humans came and messed it up, right? We are, we are part of the earth. We are, we are right. organisms ourselves. We are the masters of the earth. We can mold it and shape it to our satisfaction. And I don't, it doesn't seem to me that we are beyond our capabilities through our innovation and our technology to solve these problems. Well, the climate has definitely shifted before, but right now it's shifting in direct correlation with carbon emissions. Right. So, whether, yeah. whether it's they're harmonious or not. I agree they're right. affecting it. No, no, and, no disagreement right. here. And if, don't tell you, don't, yeah. not, not, not making any claims right. that would bother any <laughs> platforms that don't <laughs> right. allow for free thought and discussion. Yeah, just, I'm, gl- uh, I'm glad we're right. banned. This is outrageous. <laughs> you outrageous. want to make sure no one hears yes, exactly. the climate denialism that I'm putting out there. Exactly. Yeah. But to, to your point, if, if technological progress is going to be the thing that drags us out of this, the hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits that will that will stimulate that development 
in Build Back Better, like really have to be passed. Like a decade ago, two decades ago, a hundred years ago would have been better. Uh, but now, uh, now is the last chance that the U.S. Congress is going to have to do it because Democrats are going to lose control in the fall. That's pretty clear. And who knows when they're going to you know, regain power. So this is it. Like, this is their shot to stimulate the kind of technological progress that you're talking about. If you say Unless so. it's just done on the private sector, which I think the private sector is the private sector is ready anyway. to do it, but they need right. those incentives because they're up against an incumbent it helps, industry. For sure. yeah. It helps, but really when consumers see cool stuff, consumers want that cool stuff. So, you know, people want Tesla because right, they're cool. Right, but more consumers, for instance, were able to buy solar panels when you, there was a tax credit that came with it. Like, that's cool. Ooh, $70,000. Well, they're going to no, want solar panels because no one's going to want to pay for gas. Well, or, absolutely. Right, so, All of a sudden, so that's that, pretty good. I always bring up with solar panels, you have to convince your, your uh, neighbors vis-a-vis -vis the local government board to even let you do it. So there, we can most all agree bizarre, that. Most bizarre thing in the country is that there are basically no solar panels in Florida. I like how Robbie always tries to end the end the conversation with "We all agree on my libertarian principles, <laughs> right? We all agree here. Now so we right. gotta go. Murder the endangered species if they land on your on your. Uh... And we all agree. Yes. Yeah, definitely ban us. That's terrible stuff. <laughs> all right. Tomorrow on Rising. <laughs> if it exists. Tomorrow on Rising, uh, Reason Magazine's Nancy Rommelman will join us to discuss her reporting on Ukraine. And Max Alvarez and Denise Long are in for our Rising panel. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also listen to our podcast and find us on TikTok, right? We've got all these other things, all, the, all these other ways to find us. Yes. You'll never be alone. And even if you don't listen to the podcast, go rate it and review it. Give it five stars yeah. because that helps yeah. people find it. Five stars. Absolutely. Yeah. For all of us. Yes. Yeah. See you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye.